0: Welcome to The M-Files. You are listening to Valerie and Ella Mayers, Patti Woodfinkel, and John Woodward bringing you the news and interviews from the museum world.
1: This is Patty, and I wanted to tell you about our next episode. It's going to drop on November 6th, and we will be speaking with Andrew Dunahoo, Museum Curator and Director of Cultural Affairs at Crazy Horse Memorial. And now on to museum news. As some of you may have heard, the UK Museum in Oxford removed its shrunken heads from display recently. The Oxford University's Pitt Rivers Museum removed part of, the, part of the shrunken heads as well as a child's mummy from display in response to Black Lives Matter. What do you guys think about that?
0: I think this is an important topic to address. As an instructor of Museum Studies, I like to probe this notion of creating history and unintentionally creating new histories and not allowing all voices to be heard within exhibits. In some cases, this is an unintentional consequence of a curator's scripting of a narrative. However, it is so important, more so um, now than ever, that we address this issue finally and for good in museums around the world.
1: So the shrunken heads were introduced to the museum over a hundred years ago, um, but there has been a call in the past three or four years to have them removed because of the efforts that museums have been putting in for decolonizing their collections and their exhibits, which I also believe is a an excellent reason to update these exhibits and try to give the exhibit labels and the exhibits themselves more of a voice for all of the people that are impacted by these kinds of, of collections.
2: I mean, looking at it from you a know, perspective in North American museums, and especially some that deal with archaeological collections, a similar process started in the early 1990s with the passage of the Native Americans' Grave repatri- <clears throat> Protection and Repatriation Act. Excuse me. Uh, but I agree. I think the big thing is you're, we're trying to uh, create the narratives that you know, we're, we're sharing with people today, not the narratives that, that existed a century ago or earlier. Um, so I, I think it's a good move. I think it's something that is long overdue. Um, and I, I would uh, urge museums, especially smaller museums, to look at their collections in a, uh, and their exhibits in a very critical way to see, are we portraying the history of our area, you know, as it is or through a particular uh, lens?
0: And not just out of sight out of mind but there should be a concerted effort to continue to have these conversations
1: in an effort for inclusion um, i have talked to dozens of museum visitors who may have be, been visiting the museum for the first time because they always thought museums weren't for them museums have been working so hard over the past few decades to become more inclusive and to be able to encourage more people to come to the museums. And I think this is part of that ongoing conversation um, that is so important for all of us to have. You
2: know, looking at uh, especially small museums that really don't have a diverse collection, Mm -hmm. you know, they might be exhibiting certain items because that's the, you know, their key item or something that has always got or received a lot of attention from the, uh, the public and you know they're fearful that if they take those items off exhibit they're going to lose the visitation. Uh you know I I can see an argument from their perspective in terms of wanting to keep retain their audience, but on the other hand uh, that that item whatever it is or items uh, might not be the draw that they think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases it that item might be more detrimental than than they realize. So I think with a small museum, you know, look at critically what, what story you're trying to portray. Is it, are you trying to be a curio of curiosities, or are you trying to, you know, look at some of the historical th- uh, themes and narratives that uh, goes back to your uh, museum's mandate? For the final portion of today's episode, we share an interview with Rick Young. Rick is the museum director for the Fort Casper Museum in Casper, Wyoming. Rick has been with the museum for the past 35 years and has served as the director for the past 33. Aside from his work at the Fort Casmer Museum, Rick is also a past president of the Mountain Plains Museum Association. So let's get to that interview.
1: Hi, Rick, welcome.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, So our icebreaker question that we want to ask all of our guests is, what is the strangest thing that has ever happened to you at a museum? It could either be at your museum here, it could be at a previous museum, or it could be a museum that you were at as a visitor.
3: Okay, I I thought about this one a little bit, and uh, since we're in October and in the spirit of Halloween, I'll tell you a story about this museum here. Um, Years ago, we had a a very dedicated volunteer who was multiple times a week, spent a lot of time here at the museum, and and unfortunately, she passes. That winter, Over the course of a six-month period over the winter, my staff and I heard her talking in the museum multiple times to the point that it wasn't just a mumbled voice. We recognized her voice, and uh, just for that one winter, but we heard her for like six months.
1: That's an amazing story.
3: Especially coming into Halloween. So,
2: uh, Rick, can you tell us a little bit about your museum here in Casper?
3: Sure. Sure. It's a a regional history museum, so we focus on the history of Central Wyoming, Natrona County, and the city of Casper, Uh, but we also have a historic site in that we have a reconstructed 1865 fort on the property. Uh, We have a reconstruction of a section of the 1859 bridge that crossed the North Platte River, and we are also the site of the first ferry across the river with uh, the Mormon pioneer party in 1847. You can see all of those on the grounds, the museum then, Central Wyoming history, and all of it sits on just under 30 acres of ground.
2: So, uh, you know, talking a little bit more about the the Fort Casper Museum, um, how long has the museum been here?
3: Well, the 1936 reconstruction of the fort, whenever they did that, that was the museum. Uh, They had pioneer artifacts and relics and things like that in the fort buildings as well as staff offices for the caretakers so the fort was the museum the building we're in now the, the modern museum um, was built in 1982. everything was moved out of the fort buildings into a better environment in the museum that we're in now and then we were able then to take the fort buildings and refurnish those like they would have appeared in the summer of 1865.
2: All right. Just a little bit more about the museum. What are some of the special events that you uh, you host with, uh, your, uh, with the Fort Casper Museum Association, which is one of your partners here at the, at the museum?
3: Well, over the course of a year, um, of course, we do a lot of school tours. Uh, we've partnered with the library to do a book club. We do that monthly. In the summer, we have uh, what's called Casper Collins Day, which is a living history, and historic demonstrations kinds of an event out on the grounds. In October, uh, we do haunted ghost tours of the fort buildings. And then in December, the first weekend in December, uh, we do a Christmas candlelight tour of the fort buildings.
0: So Rick, this institution has such a rich history and you have so many exciting programs happening. I feel as though the past is still alive. Are there any other unexplained happenings that you'd like to share with us from the institution?
3: Sure, in fact, the whole idea, you know, when you watch on television now, there's this this plethora of ghost related kind of programming. Well, it all started off with ghost hunters which gave us the idea of doing the uh, haunted ghost tours at at Halloween every year, because over the course of time, there are a number of ghost stories that have happened down at the Ford, including some stuff that uh, the staff has seen. So that gave us the idea to do the the haunted ghost tours. Um, things like, you know, stuff moving, which none of the staff did, and you can't get into buildings because there's motion detector alarms. Um, some of those you can sort of write off and maybe maybe staff did it and we're playing a trick but we've had visitors that would have had no way of knowing each other over a period of time tell us the exact same stories of things they saw in the building while they were touring it during the middle of the day so that that sort of gets your attention uh, we've had furniture moved to where it blocked doorways in To get in the fort buildings, the doors open inside, so you can't really have put that furniture in front of the door and then got out of the door. So that was pretty interesting. One of the, one of the ones for me was uh, seeing the wet footprints. And this was, again, there's motion detectors. You can't get in the buildings. Wet footprints started in the middle of one room, walked into the middle of another room and then vanished on either side. I have no idea how to explain that one.
1: That's crazy. Um, weren't some of the firearms moved at one point as well?
3: Yeah, we would find firearms moved. I would find bayonets pulled out of scabbards and actually put on the the rifles. I would find them cocked. We don't keep them that way. And yeah, this stuff like that was just, was pretty interesting. And then, you know, voice phenomena, since we started the uh, the ghost tours, we've picked up some interesting voice phenomena that have named some of our volunteers by name. So, yeah, I mean it's it's a fun fun evening.
1: That's great. Um so you had mentioned that there was a bridge over the river. The river, the North Platte River was pretty uh, a pretty predominant uh, way for blockage to get out west. Um, And I know that some of the ghost stories might be associated with people that perhaps drowned on the river or Scary events that happened on the river. Could you tell us a little bit about the legend of the ghost ship on the Platte?
3: Sure Um, And one thing to keep in mind when you look at the North Platte River now It's not the same river that uh, the immigrants were experiencing. We've got five dams upstream from Casper and more downstream back then our bridge that was built across the river was just over a thousand feet in order to clear the floodplain. So it's a completely different river. However, the ghost ship one, um, yeah, there's a ghost frigate story that dates back to the 1860s. A trapper, first reported incident of it was a trapper in 1862. And these ghost ship sightings happen between Torrington and Alcova. What happens is it's always a late fall sighting this frigate rolls out of a uh, fog bank and it's covered in frost and you see the crew on the deck and the crew are all covered in frost and then in the middle around the crew there's a body laid out and as the person sees this ghost ship the crew steps aside and the person recognizes who's on the the canvas there laid out as the, the dead person and what it's doing is foreshadowing the death of One of your loved ones or a close friend that will happen almost immediately and there's been multiple sightings over the years of this ship rolling out of a fog bank and people swear they saw their loved one on the deck and later that day or the next day then they get word that person had died
1: wow (laughs) especially considering the time of year that that occurs that's fairly creepy
3: Well, and and how you get a frigate on the North Platte is also going to be a challenge, but (laughs) that's that's what they say they saw. So, you
2: know, I'll go with the witnesses. How how many reported sightings of the ghost frigate have there
3: been since the 1860s? You know, I, I couldn't tell you a number for that. I was able to find a half a dozen people that said they saw it and then a loved one passed. But, you know, I don't know how it gets compiled or who writes it down. But there are documented instances of people testifying that this is what they saw. When was the most recent sighting? Just out of curiosity. Well, the most recent one I saw was 1903, I think. So it's actually been quite a while. They were, they were all earlier, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. Might have been 1906 even, but but early, much earlier, you know, than now. That at least people wrote it down or somebody documented it. <laughs>
2: So one of the questions that comes up with a lot of museums is the discussion of working with paranormal investigators as they're coming into an institution. Uh, you know on one hand you have an, an institution that wants to promote uh, you know an academic uh, point of view, but on the other hand, you have other institutions that uh, you know want to have a good time and, and engage their public with uh, a topic that's gotten a lot of uh, interest in the last few years. so can you tell us about what it's like, your experiences working with paranormal investigators at the ghost tours or some, you know,
3: maybe an off-season investigations? Sure. And we've had uh, paranormal investigators approach us. Um, can they do things on the, on the site? And we've allowed them to, within their own group, come do investigations, but not inside any of the uh, fort buildings or the museum. They use the fort grounds. As far as our ghost tours, um, we've worked with a couple of different groups over the years and our approach is, and, and we stress this when we sell tickets, our approach is this is not a haunted house, people are not going to be jumping out to scare you. When we're doing the ghost tours, the paranormal groups have all of the kinds of equipment that you see on TV and they bring all of that in for the visitors to use and experience in an hour long tour. Uh, we make multiple stops and at that point we are inside the fort buildings Um, so we we approach it with sort of the way you see on on some of the tv shows in that you know ghosts are real this is not a haunted house this is a real investigation and you can participate and experience using some of the equipment that you see people use on tv so that's how we've approached it and it's it's relatively small tours Uh, we have a guide that that takes a group of 10 people around. We have four different stops down at the fort buildings. It's an hour long tour. Then the guide takes you into a place where a paranormal researcher is already stationed. And then they share equipment and experiences that have happened in that particular room or area of the fort buildings. 15 minutes later, we move to another spot. You use different equipment, again, different stories, and you get a a nice hour long tour that way.
1: And these tours have been very successful for your museum, right?
3: Yeah, it's a sellout every year. Um, The first year we did it, we did it for two nights over one weekend and immediately recognized we needed to expand it into two different weekends, and we still sell out every ticket. I mean, it's been very successful. So over the course of the the two weekends, even with small 10-person tours, uh, we're doing 480 people. Is there uh, any particular building that shows more activity than any of the others? You know, the, uh, the cavalry barracks room um, seems to have a lot of activity, and that's one where multiple tourists over different years have told us seeing the same shadow in the room, or you know, somebody will pull me aside and say, you know, that's haunted, right? And tell the exact same story that somebody else had. So there's a lot of activity there. The commissary there seems to be. Um, We've had other people tell us they've spotted people near the bridge site. So it's not limited to inside the fort buildings, but there are stories of people repeating the same story out on the ground, seeing somebody. I've uh,
2: heard from one of your volunteers uh, that uh, one of the uh, spectral denizens of the fort actually followed him home at one point.
3: Yeah, that's, I suppose that can happen. Um, as far as I know, they haven't followed me, but, but I don't know.
0: So, this is an actual fort site. Have there been bodies found on site?
3: Yeah, we've, uh, over the course of the, the time that the site has operated as a museum, we've uncovered eight different skeletons. Um, some of them probably immigrants. There was a, a point where there was a uh, a middle aged guy and a like a teenage guy that were buried next to each other. Um, they could have been a drowning victim hmm. from crossing the trail. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, the guy who built the bridge, the original bridge builder, he drowned in the river, but his body was not recovered. Um, near the entrance to the museum, we uncovered five skeletons there, uh, four soldiers and a woman, and in fact, we have. Her locket in the museum, she was found with a, a, a nice cameo that had a, a lock of blonde hair in it. Uh, one of the soldiers had 50 arrowheads in him, and another one had 36. Wow. Uh, we have some of those arrowheads. And then the last guy we found was when we were uh, prepping ground to put in our playground. Um, second scoop of dirt we moved to prep the ground for the playground, we found a guy. And uh, we think we know who that one is. That's actually one where we think we've got him identified uh, just from the wounds he had. He was shot between the eyes, at the back of his head caved in, and we found a lead ball also in his chest. He was also buried in what looks to be a scavenged wagon box turned into a coffin because his coffin had wagon fittings on it still. And we have a record of some of the guys being buried in confiscated freight wagons in order to make coffins. So over the years we've, we've found a few of course all by accident and there's a couple places on the grounds where I'm pretty sure there are more. I don't have a reason to dig them up so we're not going to, but if we ever do other ground improvements the likelihood of finding someone else again is certainly high. Now the um, the ones that were found in 1939 are actually buried on site. They were all reburied. Uh, We have a marker over by uh, a commemorative cemetery, and we have a big stone marker there, and they were reburied in that location. So that particular spot is an official Casper Cemetery, although it's not an active one that can't be used now. It is recognized as a Casper Cemetery.
2: How, how, with uh, discovering human remains on the museum property, what's been your uh, sort of the uh, method or the, the procedures that you followed when those remains have been uncovered.
3: Well, what we do, um, you know, it's it's pretty clear when we found them that they were historic and not a recent murder victim. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, get a hold of the county coroner, notify the police department, and then call the Wyoming State Archeologist, and we do it in, in that order um, <laughs> because we know we're dealing with historic. But we still have to have the coroner and the police confirm. Yeah, that person may have been murdered, but it was one hundred and fifty years ago, so you know, we can't do anything about it now. Some of the uh, the soldiers that
2: ha- remains that, that have been uh, uncovered are they uh, participants in the Battle
3: of the Platte River Bridge? The last one we found over by the playground. Um, if it's who we think it is, then yes, he would have been one of the guys that was killed with Casper Collins. Now, now Collins was. Uh, had a brief burial here. Then he was moved to Fort Laramie. And then he was moved to his permanent location. Uh, he was taken back to Hillsboro, Ohio. All right. Thank you.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the battle of Platte bridge and Casper Collins?
3: Sure. Um, summer of 1865 was a, was a particularly bad summer along the trail, a direct result of the Sand Creek massacre that happened down in Colorado that winter. Uh, so there were, there were issues with you know, the tribes and the different immigrants passing through in the Army for the summer of 65. July 26, which was the day Casper Collins was killed at the Battle of Platte Bridge, he was tasked to ride out that morning to go meet Army supply trains that had resupplied little forts farther west. They knew, the Army knew, the wagons were coming back. They also knew that there were a large number of Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho in the area. So Collins was ordered to go out, meet those wagons, and escort them back to the fort. So they cross the bridge, and they don't even get a mile away, and they're jumped. Uh, in, in that battle, most of those guys were able to wheel around and come racing back to the fort and the bridge for safety, This Collins only had 20 guys with him. Uh, and then it ends up, during the Battle of Platte Bridge, collins and four of the troopers are killed the rest of them make it back into the fort Uh, so that's called the battle of Platte bridge later that day then the wagons that they were expecting did show up on the horizon the fort fires the cannon to warn them the uh, lakota cheyenne and arapaho saw them at the same time the army did so they ride out there and that's called the battle of red buttes where those three army supply wagons were attacked Three of the soldiers were, were riding in an advance guard ahead of the wagons and they saw what was coming. They wheeled to the right, got down to the river and made it, snuck back into the fort and made it back. But the other 22 soldiers that were out there were killed. And we don't really know the, uh, the losses, how many, how many of the Lakota, Cheyenne, or Arapaho might have been killed, because essentially they won both battles and then they were able to take their people back with them. So we don't really know the casualties on that side, um, but we do know the Army side.
0: Are there any other stories that you'd like to share? Or would you like to tell us a museum joke? Something from the collection of jokes that you have been building over
1: your Uh, lifetime.
3: I should have prepped for that one because I I can't think of one right now off the top of my head.
1: Oh, Rick has (laughs) the best museum jokes.
3: Yeah, I I can't think of one off the top of my head, darn it. (laughs) Well, we certainly
2: appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, Do you have anything that you'd like to share with, maybe, for emerging museum professionals, uh, you know, a piece of
3: advice for someone who's just joining the museum field? Well, what I found valuable, and and you three here know the same thing, go to your state and your regional museum conferences and and meet with the staff that's been there for a while. Meet with these people that are working in the field. Make those network connections and, and talk to people. Don't just go to classes. Although that's important to go do, but make sure you stick around for the social activities and you spend time meeting the people in the field. You want to build a real network of people that can help you out throughout your career. and That's what I've been able to do. You guys know the same thing. You make a network of people that you know across the country that uh, can help you solve problems or you can offer advice to help them solve problems. But, mm-hmm. but building that network of people is critical and you do that at these conferences.
2: That wraps up this episode of The M Files. Please be sure to tune in in a couple of weeks with our interview on November 6th with Andrew Dunahoo.